Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for that truth we just sang. Thank you that we have your smile. Thank you that all is well because of Christ. And Lord, we do ask that you would bless our time in your word, or that it would be fruitful, profitable, that your people would be built up as a result of looking at this text. And Lord, I pray that you would help me uh, to keep my voice and to speak clearly. And Lord, I pray that you would be honored by our time together. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I'm going to pick back up with our study of Mark's account of the life of Jesus. Our focus this morning will be on verses 13 to 17. And in God's providence, it just so happens that we're dealing with an issue of self-righteousness on Reformation Sunday. The Reformation is a time when we remember uh, what was sort of uncovered afresh by the Reformers in the the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Well, there's another way of ascertaining justification, and that is justification by self-effort. And we call that self-righteousness. Self-righteousness It really is, of all the diseases that mankind has, self-righteousness is probably the most deadly of all. You remember that Jesus reserved the, the harshest words for those who sought to establish a righteousness of their own and therefore looked at others with contempt. The idea, or the, the definition rather, of self-righteousness is is this conception that you can somehow generate within yourself enough goodness, righteousness, holiness, in order to be acceptable before God. So self-righteousness is the idea that you can somehow generate within yourself enough goodness or righteousness to find favor or acceptance in the sight of God. In the book of Romans... Paul takes this to task. He particularly does so in Romans 3, but he addresses the issue directly in Romans chapter 10. I want you to listen to his address here when he's speaking about his own people, the Jews, sort of diagnosing what their problem really was. And in chapter 10 and verse 2, he writes this, For I bear them witness, Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Did you catch that? They are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And therefore, as a consequence, they set out to establish a righteousness of their own. Paul says they're zealous for God, but their zeal itself was misguided because it lacked the proper knowledge of God's righteousness. Their zeal fueled and inflamed their own efforts to self-justify. And Paul says if they had known 
the righteousness of God, they would have realized that the righteousness that God demands is a righteousness that no man, fallen man, could ever achieve. God demands perfect, absolute, from the heart conformity to the law that He has given. Complete heart obedience to the law. That's the righteousness that God's, God demands. It's the righteousness that God requires. And that is true today. Now, the reality is that fallen men can never meet that demand. Never. James 2 tells us that if you break even one of God's laws, you are guilty or culpable for all of them. Now the reality is, is it, the problem is not that God demands too much of us. You know, it's not that God is the teacher who gives a test that no one can pass. And that's not the issue. The issue is that the test is simple. It seems so complicated, and the reason it seems so difficult is because we are so incredibly fallen and broken and sinful. How is it that we cannot simply obey the good and benevolent and loving and kind and gracious God who says, I will never do you harm and I'm only for your good? How is it so hard for us to obey? Well, it's because we are fallen. We, we have inherited a sin nature that's inclined or disinclined to obey God. Now, we know that, because Scripture tells us that. But the self-righteous person is ignorant, according to Romans 10, is ignorant of the inherent righteousness of God and the demands that God makes on humanity. And so, out of their ignorance, they go about thinking they can use the law of God as a ladder to climb to heaven. And the law was not meant to function that way, especially in the life of fallen sinners. The law, rather, is a light or a mirror that shows us our desperate need of a righteousness that we cannot earn. The self-righteous person is blinded, though, to this. And because they miss this, they also miss the beauty of the gospel, which is that God demands a righteousness that we can never keep, but the gospel in Christ, He achieves a righteousness that we could never earn. And by grace, through faith, He bestows on all those who abandoned their own righteousness, He bestows a righteousness that they could never achieve, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to show you this, and it seems like I'm getting on a tangent, and maybe I am. Keep your finger in Mark there in Mark chapter 2, and I want you to flip over to Philippians. I want to just show you how the, the person who sees their, themselves clearly, how they respond uh, to the righteousness of God, how they abandon their own righteousness in favor of a superior righteousness, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 3. You remember the context here is that Paul is warning the Philippians of a group of people called Judaizers who were coming into the churches and they were 
trumpeting a sort of, or advancing a sort of self-made righteousness. You guys think that you're holy? Well, if you want to be really holy, what you need to do is adopt the ceremonial laws. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to um, observe the dietary laws. You need to go back to the Old Covenant. And Paul has no time for this. And he recognizes that what these people are doing is essentially the gospel of self-righteousness. And so look at what Paul does. It's, it's really amazing. Starting in, in verse 2. He says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now it's not because Paul had no reason for confidence in the flesh. He was a righteous man and so he lays it out for the Philippians. Look at verse 4. It says, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, if it's a self-righteous game, I'm going to win. Let me show you. Verse 5, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found what? Blameless. Alright? Here's a man who had every reason to go around thinking heaven could be won by climbing the ladder of the law. He was a righteous man. He was zealous. But Paul recognizes that the righteousness that God requires exceeds the righteousness that he himself had attained. Now you recognize that when he met the Lord Jesus. But here he, he, he says in verse 7, look, he says, whatever things were gained to me, right? all the things I've just listed, these are the things that we're going to see in our text that the Pharisees laid hold of, and, and these were the things by which they justified themselves. These were the things, these were the ladder, as it were, that they were climbing to get to heaven. And notice what Paul does with these things. Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Now look carefully at verse 9. And I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul knew he needed a righteousness that he could never attain on his own. And so because of that, he fled, he cast aside all of his righteousness, as it were, and by faith he exchanged that for the righteousness of Christ. That is the gospel. The exchange of your best, which Isaiah 64, 6 says, is like filthy rags. 
The best you can offer falls drastically short of the demand of God's righteousness and His requirement on His people. And so, by faith, one can trade their filthy rags of righteousness and receive the righteousness of Christ, perfectly spotless, and be found justified now and forevermore. The sinner who gets that is elated. When you see that, you're forever changed. Changed. John Bunyan, when he recognized this truth, said it was like the chains falling off of his arms. He was all of a sudden free. Heaven wasn't gained by Bunyan's own righteousness. It was gained by the righteousness of Christ, apprehended or laid hold of through faith alone. That's the sinner's glory. It's our glory. It's what we love to sing about. However, this truth and the call of Jesus as a package is scandalous to the self-righteous. The self-righteous look at that, what I just said, Paul in Philippians 3, and say, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? What do you mean you call your righteousness rubbish? It doesn't make sense to them. Now what we see, now we can go back to Mark 2, what we see in our text this morning is exactly this reality, that the gracious call of God that brings with it the righteousness of Christ received by faith, that is the sinner's joy, but it is a scandal and a stumbling block to the self-righteous. Now, the, what I hope you get from this study this morning is that you recognize what band or what camp you are in. Right, all of us here this morning are either in the camp of the Pharisees or we're in the camp of Levi, the sinner's. You are either here this morning and you recognize with crystal clarity your need for Jesus. And so you've run to Him and you've found in Him what you could never find in yourself. Forgiveness, righteousness, eternal life. Or you are in the camp of the Pharisee. The self-righteous camp. And and I can tell you, and give you a, a little test to tell you where you are if you think of jesus and it makes you want to yawn you are in the pharisee camp because the pharisees the self-righteous camp has no need for jesus why why would we ever need someone to give us righteousness when we can get it ourselves right and you're here this morning and you're in one of those camps And I hope, as we study through this text, you will see where you are and you will become like Levi. Become like Levi, the scum of the earth, as we'll see, and flee to Jesus and find in Him what you could never gain on your own. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. And he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up 
and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. You can be seated. Now to help us work through this text, I've divided it up into three sections. You'll see those in your notes. Excuse me. And what I plan to do with you is just work through each one of those sections one by one, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be out here in a timely manner. You're thinking, that was a long introduction. (laughs) Well, we'll see what the Lord does. All right, the first section we'll call the call of a sinner. It begins really verses 13 and goes through verse 15. And verse 13 is the start. It, it starts really with Mark setting the scene for us. And the text says, And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now this comes immediately on the hills of the events we looked at last week in verses 1 to 12, the healing of the paralytic. You remember the crowds throng to probably Peter's house. Five men come bearing their friend who's a paralytic. Four of them bearing the paralytic. They try to get to Jesus, but the crowds are so thick that there is no room. And so they turn around and, and just say, we'll try another day. No. Remember, they, they are resolved to meet Jesus, to get this man to Jesus. And so they're driven by their sincere, genuine faith. They climb up on the roof. They dig through it. Right over the top of Jesus, they let the man down, and Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Now that immediately provokes the scribes. Remember, the scribes are the, the religious uh, experts. They're experts particularly in the Mosaic law. And they're there as well. They're listening to Jesus, and they're happy to hear Jesus teach. They love Jesus as a, as a teacher. He's a great teacher. But they're struck by Jesus' statement, your sins are forgiven. Now, why are they struck by that? Well, because they have excellent theology in the the sense that they know there is only one being who has the kind of authority to unilaterally forgive sinners. And that is God. And they look at Jesus and say, he is not God. And so they, they accuse him of blasphemy. Leviticus 24, 16 says that is a crime punishable by death. And we see in chapter 3 and verse 6 that it's really at this point that the scribes and the Pharisees begin plotting how they might destroy Jesus. So they see Jesus as a blasphemer. They don't get that maybe this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7. Maybe this is Emmanuel. Maybe this is God with us. And here is Jesus, unilaterally forgives this man, and then they get into a debate. Jesus settles the debate 
by saying, okay, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to get up and walk? And of course, the answer is, well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven uh, because that's not falsifiable. But if you say, take up your bed and walk, okay, that, that's, we, can, we will know whether or not you are who you say you are. And so Jesus says, okay, get up, take up your bed and walk. And to everyone's astonishment, the man gets up and walks out. Now, everyone is amazed The scribes are perplexed, and everyone leaves there, verse 12 says, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I don't know if you've ever been into a debate, um, and I don't know if you've ever taught, uh, but both of those things are exhausting. They, They will zap you of your strength and energy. And so naturally, verse 13, it looks like Jesus says, I'm just going to go out for a walk on the seashore. Beautiful area, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus goes down to the shore, and he's walking. And the, the grammar of the text is, is really, it's almost like, um, kind of like the waves crashing on the shore of Galilee. And here's what I mean. It says, he went out by the sea, the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. It's like wave after wave. This same thing happened. This was the rhythm of Jesus' life. He would do something wonderful. People were shocked. He would get away. They would come to him, and he would teach them. This was the rhythm of Jesus' life. And the text says all the people were coming to him. And so he does what he does. He stands up and teaches. Remember, Jesus says, that is what I came for. He didn't come to heal. He didn't come to do miracles. All of the miracles, all of the healing confirm him to be the Savior, the Messiah of the world. Right? All of the, the miracles, signs, wonders Jesus does authenticate him as the promised Messiah, and as God's messenger. Well, at some point he stops walking, or at some point, rather, he, he turns and he starts teaching the crowds, and then at some point he ends his teaching session and he starts walking along the shore again, in verse 14 says, says, as he passed by, the crowds are probably flowing behind him, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. Now, both the Gospel of Luke and Mark here identify this man in the tax booth as Levi, but Levi is better known by his Greek name, Matthew. He is the one who composed the first gospel, which tells us a little bit about this man. He would have been educated. Uh, He would have been fluent in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. We know that from reading the gospel of Matthew itself. And it also tells us, most importantly, uh, that this man was a wretched sinner and outcast of the Jewish people. Now we know that because it says he's sitting in a tax booth. Right? He's not just taking a rest from the walk he had just went on and just so happens to sit at the tax booth. No, this is his job. Levi is a tax collector. Now, you know probably what this entails, and I don't have time to go into elaborate detail, but let me just tell you what it means for Levi to be a tax collector. You remember the Jewish people, people are under the rule of Rome. Right? Rome is the oppressor. The hope is that the Messiah will come and overthrow the oppressor. Well, Levi, who was a Jew, 
has teamed up with the oppressor. As a tax collector, Levi would have been an employer, employee rather, of the state of Rome. And Levi would have either, uh, probably Levi was not the main tax collector, like uh, the chief tax collector. He was probably a, a lesser tax collector. But don't misunderstand that. Levi would have still been uh, involved in a very lucrative business. Right, so the way that taxes worked was that Rome, in order to make their money to fund their wars and conquer the world, they taxed the people, and they especially taxed the Jews. And so, in order to get their money from the people, they would contract tax collectors to go out and get what the people owed. Usually it was wealthy people who would win the bid for collecting taxes. They would go, the Rome would say, we need X amount of dollars. The, the taxpayer, potential tax... Uh, sorry, I can't speak. Uh, Rome would say, we need X amount of money. And the, the person who was the tax collector would say, okay, I will go and get this for you for this much money. I'll go retrieve all of this for X amount of dollars. In order for that tax collector to make money, he necessarily had to charge more than the government was taxing the people. Well, the tax, the person who won the bid for the job would then hire lesser tax collectors below him to go out and do the work. And those lesser tax collectors would often hire thugs, essentially, to go you know, turn the people over and shake their money out of their pockets. And Levi has thro- had thrown his lot in with this group. He was a lesser tax collector. And he would have most likely had his shop or his, you know, think of like a table here. It's not an office. It's not H&R Block. It's a table uh, that he would have set at uh, probably right on this ancient harbor on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum uh, was about a mile long, and it stretched along this coast, not far inland, but it just stretched along the coast. And there was a major highway that ran right through the city uh, that ran from Egypt all the way up to Assyria. And also, the main harbor was right there. So Levi probably situated himself right in the middle, where he could make money from the highway travelers, and he would have made money from all of the imports and exports happening on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the taxes that Levi would have collected would have been something like duties and customs. This was actually the kind of taxes that the Jews despised the most because it was the most arbitrary. And essentially, uh, the tax collector could come up with all of these taxes. He could stop, you know, you're, you're pulling your wagon, all your hard-earned, uh, say, vegetables, you're pulling it to town. And the tax collector could stop you and say... Huh, you haven't paid your taxes on your wagon wheels. This is a double axle trailer. Uh, you owe X amount of dollars here. Or let me, let me, and they, the, the tax collector had all the authority to empty the entire cart one by one. He, he could even thumb through the personal correspondence of the individual. And at the end of all of that, he could say, okay, you owe $500. And it seemed totally arbitrary. And this is what Levi would have been able to do. And so Levi would have made his money essentially by extortion. Now, the tax collector 
was especially wealthy because his business was very lucrative. But the wealth he gained came at the high price of losing all his social contacts. In fact, if you were a Jew and became a tax collector, you were barred from the synagogue, excommunicated. Uh, If you were a tax collector as a Jew, if you entered into a tax collector's home, rather, you would you, as entering into their home, would have been regarded as unclean. The rabbis went so far as telling uh, Jews that they were permitted to lie to tax collectors to protect their own property. They even placed tax collectors on the level of thieves and murderers because in in reality, they they were thieves. That's what they did. They, They essentially stole and extorted. To be a Jewish tax collector then was to give up your very identity, your social status. And even it was to be seen as a disgrace to your family. So here's Levi, well-educated. We know he can think. We know he can do numbers at least. I mean, he's dealing with all these taxes and all these numbers. We know from the gospel he wrote that he was well-educated. He was a Jew. And he, he would have made the decision to become a tax collector. And he would have been essentially the scorn of his entire family. But for him, the money he could make in Capernaum was worth the shame of being cast out of the religious structure. So here he is, sitting at his tax booth, probably at this harbor, and Levi is you know, collecting taxes. There's ancient um, documents that say even the, the fish from the Sea of Galilee were taxed. You go catch two fish, you owe X amount of dollars. And here's Levi. And all of a sudden, a religious Jewish man, a renowned teacher in Capernaum, comes up to him, unfazed by Levi's status. And he looks at Levi and he says, follow me. It's shocking. An old crowd is behind him. They see what's happening. And he says to him, follow me. Now this is not an invitation. Right, this is a command from Jesus to Levi. Get behind me, Levi. Come with me. It's the same command that Jesus issued to Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The four fishermen in chapter 1. Same thing he said to them. Come and follow me. Now what's interesting is they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They would have caught a lot of fish. They would have paid a lot of taxes. Right? And so who do they pay their taxes to? Most likely, it's to this man, Levi. Now we know that Levi would have had to have his head in the sand, which he didn't because he was a tax collector constantly dealing with people. He would have had to have his head in the sand to not know about Jesus. I mean, just think about the way that chapter 1 describes the news about Jesus. Verse 28 says that the news about Jesus spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Verse 33, we read that the whole city gathered together at Peter's house. And then in verse 45, we read that so many people had gathered together as a result of the news that the, the, the leper was spreading about Jesus, so many people came to him 
that Jesus could no longer even enter a city. So Levi had to know about this teacher. Maybe he would have even heard him teaching on the Sea of Galilee. And all of that suggests to us that probably, based on the way Levi responds, that he had heard Jesus teach and at some point had come under conviction that he was a wicked sinner needing the forgiveness that Jesus was promising. Here he is with all the material benefits the world has to offer him. Social outcast, though, from his family and from his religion. Weighed down by a life of sin and guilt. You see this dark cloud over this man. All of a sudden, the proud Levi, who's taking all people's money, is sitting there. What's going on with Levi? And Jesus comes up to him at the right time. And he looks at him. And he says, follow me. Now, Jesus has a way of showing up at the right time. Right? Many of you were at the lowest point in your life when all of a sudden, the call came. All of a sudden, Jesus was there. All of a sudden, the gospel made sense to you. Whereas before... I have no need of that righteousness that Jesus has to offer. And then all of a sudden, through a series of events in your life, you're brought to the bottom, and at the right time, Jesus calls you. And here, Levi is called at the right time, and with absolutely no hesitation, he gets up, Luke tells us, Luke 5, that he leaves everything behind and follows Jesus. Now he's a tax collector. Files, paperwork, money. He leaves it all behind. And he follows Jesus. This is nothing short of a miracle. It's supernatural. It's a work that only Jesus, through the work of the Spirit, could accomplish. By all accounts, this is Levi's conversion. It's amazing. Let me just point out a few things about the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus is effectual. And we see that in the text. It's effectual. When Jesus calls, Levi doesn't say, ah, I think I'll just stay here. When Jesus calls a sinner, they follow. This is not the general call. This is not the call, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. A general call to the crowd. No, this is a an effectual, specific to that individual call. When Jesus makes that call, there is no option. It's an irresistible, effective, effectual call. Second, the call of Jesus here is a gracious call. Nothing in Levi merited Jesus' attention. The only thing that Levi had to offer was what? His sin. His wretchedness, his years of unfaithfulness, the mountain of sin and debt. That's what he had to offer. This is a a truth that is sweet and 
joyful to the sinner. Only those who are aware of their sin, only those who have sinned their way out of favor with God are now qualified to receive the call of Jesus. It's a gracious call. Jesus' call is unmerited. You don't earn it. Third, the call of Jesus is transformative. It's transformative. Jesus calls Levi, and all at once, he becomes a new man. All right? Tax collectors don't leave their work, their money, their, their ledgers. They don't leave that behind. But all of a sudden, Jesus knocks on his door, calls him, and Levi is changed. All, right? all of a sudden, what used to matter matters no more, and he's following the king. He has new priorities, new desires, new ambitions. And that's the transformation that Jesus' call has. It's effectual, it's gracious, and it brings about transformation. And we know that. We've all experienced it. Well, if you haven't experienced that, we invite you to come to Jesus. But we know that Jesus' call is effectual. It's effectual in our life. It's gracious. We didn't merit it. And it's transformative. And that is the way it came to Levi. And so according to Luke's account of, Levi, or of, of this story, of the call of Levi, Levi follows Jesus, leaves everything, but then he goes and he puts together a banquet for Jesus. This is a, a celebration of the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the guest of honor. Levi is so elated at what has happened to him. Jesus has met him in his hour of greatest need, and Levi is overjoyed. It's what the call of Jesus does. It elates the sinner. And so Levi calls his tax collector friends, and he invites them to meet Jesus. And really, this is the most natural response of the sinner who has met the Savior. Bringing everyone in to come and meet the Savior. Levi has been forgiven an incredible debt. And now his love and gratitude is ascending to the height of his former debt he owed God. And in his joy, he calls all of his friends together, throws a banquet, and so in verse 15 we read, And it happened that he was reclining at table in his house. That's Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. This is the banquet that Levi throws. Now, a couple of things to note here. The word sinner is a technical term to refer to anyone who was outside of the law of God. In other words, anyone who was irreligious, any Jew who didn't practice. These were non-practicing Jews. Levi was a non-practicing Jew, right? He was kicked out of the synagogue. He was a tax collector. So all the friends that he brings together with him to celebrate Jesus, they too are considered as outsiders. They're sinners. Literally, these are the people described in Psalm 1, the wicked, that you don't want to be like. And here they are, all in one room. Among this group were probably legitimate criminals. You think about the structure of tax collecting in Rome. Levi would have had orbiting around him essentially 
people like him in one respect, and then people lower than him that were sort of like thugs and would say, you know, do the bidding for Levi to go uh, and receive, or gather rather, the taxes that Rome demanded. And so this was a motley crew, right? This is a group of, of tax collectors, sinners, thugs, all people undeserving of the grace of God, and the scribes of the Pharisees, according to verse 16, they see this sight and they're repulsed. Right? It's, it's unlawful, according to their laws, for Jesus to even enter the house of Levi. But it's worse than that. There are tax collectors who are now part of Jesus' uh, disciples. They're following him. Levi is one of them. But if you look at verse 14, it says there were many, rather, let me get my place. Yeah, there were, verse 15, sorry. For there were many of them, the end, and they were following him. It's the end of verse 15. They were dining with Jesus, probably reclining at the table, loaves, table, six inches off the ground. And there were many of them, and they were following him. So among this group of general, you know, ruffians was a group of tax collectors and sinners who were actually following Jesus. Mark used this, this word, follow, 19 times in the Gospel of Mark. And every time it's used, it refers to people who had exercised faith. It's never used of anyone who opposes Jesus. It's always used of genuine faith, the response to follow Jesus in faith. So this is something like a fellowship that's happened. There's a group of sinners who have come to know Jesus, and they're rejoicing, they're elated, they're happy, they're celebrating. Jesus is there, it's a long feast. Jesus is able to teach, encourage, share the gospel, remind them of the mountain of debt that he has forgiven as God incarnate. And they are worshiping, this is something like a revival. But the scribes were not okay with this. They were confused. They were confused. Verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw this, saw rather that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Now they're legitimately confused here. But that's probably, confusion is probably an understatement. Uh, The way that this question is framed, the grammar, it could actually be something like an accusation. So you could remove the question mark, put an exclamation mark, and it would also work. It, it, It would come into English as sort of a shout saying, he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And he says that to Jesus? No, he says it to the disciples. Why? We don't know. Maybe they're too cowardly to confront Jesus again. They've been proven wrong recently. And so they go to the disciples, maybe an effort to undercut the disciples' faith. We're not really sure. But they go to Jesus and say, look what he's doing. Don't you know your rabbi is doing what the Mishnah, which is like the Pharisaical collection of wisdom, what our laws essentially say a rabbi cannot do, namely fellowship with the Am Ha'aretz, that is, the people of the earth. That's another way of saying lowlifes. Rabbis, holy people, they don't mingle with lowlifes like that. This is contempt. This is self-righteousness. This is 
the height of self-righteousness. No wonder Jesus constantly berates and opposes this kind of behavior, these Pharisees. Actually, in Luke 18, Jesus captures the spirit here of the Pharisees when he, he says, Luke 18, verse 9, He told them a parable to some. Let me start over there. Luke 18, verse 9, He also told this parable to some people, listen carefully, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And therefore, it says, they viewed others with contempt. So they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, I wonder what this parable is going to include. Who are you going to talk about, Jesus? Well, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Interesting. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. It's really fascinating. This is like he's just praying to himself. This is self-righteousness. This is Matthew 5, right? This is, they're doing all that they do to be seen by other people, and Jesus tells them they receive their reward, right? They're getting their heaven right now. So lavish the praise on them. That's their heaven. They'll spend eternity in hell because their righteousness will not meet the demands that God gives. And so here he is praying to himself. He thinks he's praying to God, but he's really just praying to himself. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, which is not required in the Old Testament. I pay tithes rather of all that I get. Right, here is a man who's self-righteous, and he's a Pharisee. That's the attitude that these scribes have. They're self-righteous, they're confident in their own standing before God based on their own ability to climb the ladder of the law to get to heaven. And so they look at other people with contempt. That's exactly what's happening. Why, Jesus, or why, rather, disciples, does your rabbi eat with these low lives? Well, the answer to that question is found in verse 17. I just skipped a lot of stuff just so you know. The answer to that question is found in verse 17. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why was Jesus a friend to these low lives? Why did he rejoice and celebrate with Levi and his friends? Well, Jesus says he did that because that was his mission. And he quotes to them a, a familiar proverb. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. It's a common proverb. Jews would have known it. Non-Jews would have known it. It was, it was totally common, and it takes no explanation. Right? Sick people go to the doctor. Healthy people don't go to the doctor. I'm a doctor. I have the cure to what ails these tax collectors and sinners. Actually, God has sent me from heaven as the great physician to cure their ailment, to cure their disease. 
Why are you surprised that I would go to them to bring them the gospel? It's like a doctor who's repulsed by sick people. It doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, I am the great physician and I'm here to heal sinners. That's why I'm with them. And what's striking is the people who followed Jesus, they didn't stay in their former condition long. Levi leaves it all and is transformed. Same thing happens with the other disciples. They leave it all and they don't stay in their former status long. It's because Jesus is about the transformation of his people. And then he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now this is an indictment of the self-righteous Pharisees. Now the text says the scribes of the Pharisees. It's the scribes who were also Pharisees. Pharisees were a sect. Scribes were the experts of the Mosaic Law. And the scribes, these, this group of scribes here, were also of the Pharisaical sect. So that's what Mark means here. And Jesus, when he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, what he means is, I did not come to call the self-righteous. I did not come to call people like you. Right? The Pharisees, they think all is well. Right? They're the healthy people who have no need of a doctor. Right? They're the righteous who have no need of an alien righteousness that would come from Christ. It's not alien from outer space. It's alien foreign to you. They have no need for that. And so Jesus says, my call is not to you. My call is to these sinners. There's an indictment. It's a powerful response to the accusation that the scribes of the Pharisees had made. And what we see here is that the call of Jesus was and remains scandalous to people who are self-righteous. People who are self-righteous miss the entire mission of Jesus. They have no idea that they are sinners, that they have no idea that they have a disease and they need a cure. And there's only one remedy and Jesus has it. They have no idea. They're blinded by their self-righteousness. And that is exactly what self-righteousness does. It blinds. It makes you believe. It deceives you into thinking. You can somehow gain heaven on your own two feet. You can do it by your own hands. And Jesus says to them, as long as you think you can see, as long as you think you are healthy, you will never come. You will never come. And that is true today. The Pharisees did not die in the first century. The Pharisees are still alive and well. And some of you are of the Pharisee band. And it's true. You've come to church your whole life. You, you've been here for years. And you're constantly wondering, why do they sing about Jesus so passionately? You're probably thinking about me. Why is he up here crying all the time? <clears throat> the Pharisees are alive and well. And you are of their band if you think you can earn heaven by being good enough. Friends, it will never work. You will never climb that ladder. You will always fall 
And then you have to deceive people around you into thinking that you're better than you are. But there's another type of person in this text, and that is the sinner. The sinner. Those are the ones Jesus came to call, not the righteous. These are the ones like Levi who actually see their need for Jesus. And they see that they are desperately sick and they need a cure. And when Jesus comes to them and says, follow me, they get up and rejoice and follow him because they know now everything is well. Jesus will take care of it all. And they go throughout their life elated at the gracious, kind, merciful, effective call of Jesus. If we learn anything from this text, it's that Jesus is a friend of sinners. There's another group, real quick, of you who think, I'm a sinner, but I'm I'm way, way outside of the category of Jesus' saving power. Well, Levi demonstrates that there is none outside of the mercy and grace of God. If Jesus called Levi, you are not too much of a sinner to be called. If you come to him, he promises that he will never cast you out. It's guaranteed. And you will ascertain, you will gain a righteousness that will carry you through eternity. The righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for that righteousness. We thank you that in Christ all is well. We have no reason to fear, no reason to worry, no reason to question your love, no reason to question your sovereign decree for us. Because we are yours, all is well. And Lord, we ask that you would rid us of the dreadful disease of self-righteousness and that we would adopt, all of us, the posture of Levi, the humble sinner, elated at your kindness and mercy, at the abundance of your goodness poured out on us in Christ. And we thank you for him. We love you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.